Uh, let's pray as we look at these verses together. Father, thank you for your word to us in Exodus. We pray that we might hear you speak. Amen. What you may well be thinking, um, I certainly was as I sat down at my desk this week, is this chapter all about? This chapter in which uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, rocks up at their camp in the wilderness, verse 5, hears of how God has rescued Israel from Egypt and gives some practical administrative advice. Uh, we've seen God's glorious rescue of his people from Egypt via the Red Sea, his provision for them in their wilderness journey. And many of us probably know what's coming. God's giving of the law, the Ten Commandments from chapter 19 onwards. But what is chapter 18 doing here? It feels a bit like when your mum turns up at your workplace. Mum, didn't I tell you to meet me around the corner? A strange intrusion of the domestic into the flow of action here. Well, the first helpful thing to notice is that this passage is actually quite closely linked with the one just before it. Um, the surprise attack of the Amalekites in the second half of chapter 17. Um, in both these passages, uh, we have interaction between God's people, the Israelites, and a non-Jewish nation, uh, because Jethro is a Midianite, remember? In uh, chapter 17, verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked Israel, whereas in chapter 18, verses 5 to 7, Jethro came and greeted them. In chapter 17, men were chosen to fight, whereas in chapter 18, men are chosen to judge. In chapter 17, Moses sits on a stone. In chapter 18, he sits to judge. And in both chapters, Moses is described as tired and he is helped. So I think a first thing to notice is the contrast and, and that this is a more positive Gentile response to God's having saved Israel. Another thing to note is that God doesn't directly do anything in this passage. We're not even told that he sent Jethro or, or, or that Jethro's advice came from God. All the verbs in chapter 18 linked to God are past tense, things that God has done. So we can see this passage. As, as something of a mental pit stop, a chance to stop, look back and reflect on everything that has happened in Exodus so far. And also, I think the Israelites struggle here, look at verse 16, verse 20, to discern how to live according to God's decrees and instructions. But I think that's also meant to point forwards, to show us why Israel needed the law to be more clearly revealed to them. And the heart of this passage, well, I think the heart of this passage is the theme of knowing. Knowing has been a significant theme in Exodus, and maybe you've spotted it. Um, the word for knowing in Hebrew has already been used 26 times. You can look that up later. And significantly, you might remember God's statement in Exodus 9, verse 14, that he sent the plagues so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. And not just that Pharaoh would know, but that the whole of Egypt, Israel, the world would know 
that Israel's God is the only God. And then in verse 11 of chapter 18, now I know, Jethro says, that the Lord is greater than all other gods. Jethro has learned exactly what God intended him to learn from the judgment of Egypt. And the words um, translated in our NIV Bibles as inform them in verse 16 and show them in verse 20 are in fact the passive form of the same verb, make them know. Moses is to make God's ways known to God's people. And so we see at the heart of this passage, God's people are to know him and to know his ways. And we'll look at the passage in two halves now. So first, know the greatness of God. Verses 1 to 12. Know the greatness of God. Verse 1 picks up the story of Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, and his daughter Zipporah, Moses' wife, and uh, Moses' two sons in verses 2, 3 and 4. We, um, we first met Jethro and Zipporah, as you might remember, in chapter 2, verses 16 to 22, when Moses arrived in Midian, having fled from Pharaoh. And we last saw Jethro when he gave approval to Moses right after the burning bush revelation in 4, verse 18, um, to return to Egypt on God's mission. And we last saw Zipporah uh, in chapter 4, verses 24 to 26, as she performed an emergency circumcision on the journey back to Egypt. And it appears from verses two and three of our chapter today, uh, that at some point Moses um, sent his family back to Midian uh, for safety, we imagine. But having heard now of God's rescue of his people, of their safety, um, Jethro brings them back, verse one. And we have a family reunion in the wilderness. And you can see the warmth and respect between Moses and Jethro in verse seven. But the heart of the scene isn't the greeting, it's the conversation that goes on inside Moses's tent. Look down with me at verse eight. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. What a joy it must have been for Moses to have a chance to reflect back on all that had happened and to tell the story to a captive listener. And notice two things in what he says. First, he speaks of everything the Lord had done. God is the centre of Moses' story, not Moses. There's not a personal pronoun in sight. His story is all about God. Because Moses' story so easily could have been, I went back to Pharaoh like God told me and I told him he needed to let my people go. And if he didn't, I would perform these amazing miracles that God had given me. And he didn't listen to me. So I told Aaron to lift up his staff and so on and so on. But Moses knew who the key player here was. And it wasn't him. He didn't tell the story with himself as the main character. 
I wonder whether we fall into that trap in the way we formally give our testimony or more simply just the way we talk about what God's doing in our lives. And it, it ends up all being about me. I know how much I can tend towards uh, introspection, self-absorption, how quick I am, how much more comfortable I feel speaking of what I've done how far I've come, how much I've learned, the great things I feel I have done, rather than that God has done in me. One writer on these verses um, puts it that, that we speak about what God has done in and through me, but with the emphasis on the latter, not the former. There's a lesson here. I think for me, at least, Moses spoke of everything the Lord had done. Second thing to notice about what Moses said, um, he spoke about all the hardships they had met along the way. He spoke about all the hardships they had met along the way. I think we can take it from that line that Moses didn't wrap things up at the Red Sea, as I think I would have been tempted to do, skipping over the grumbling in the wilderness bit that came after. He told the whole story, the hard bits, as well as the glorious. And again, I wonder whether there's something for us to learn from this. When we speak of our Christian lives, our sanctification and growth, do we speak only of the successes, airbrushing out the bits that make us look less good? We speak of struggles, perhaps, but we fail to mention the sin that rears its ugly head in the middle of those struggles. Well, we speak of our sin, but only in the past tense, only mentioning it when we feel like we've dealt with it as a success story rather than a work in progress. Many people have asked me, and I'm sure Phil too, how things are going while our pastor Dan is away on sabbatical. And hearing Moses' testimony has made me consider how I answer that question. Do I make it all sound easy? Like I've got it all sorted. Do I use humour to deflect the question? Do I make it all about me and not about God? Do I speak of the struggles but fail to mention my sin in them? Or speak of my sin earlier in the past tense and not what I'm struggling with now? Maybe I need to be a little bit more honest in the way I speak. Maybe we all do. Moses spoke about all the hardships they had met along the way. Let's move on now to Jethro's response to this story. And his response is exemplary. Read verse nine with me. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro responded, not only in belief, but in delight. His heart was filled with joy. And verse 10, he said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hands of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. He responded in praise, praising the God who had done such wonderful things. And more than that, he, um, he makes the big statement of verse 11. Now I know 
that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. He testifies, doesn't he, that these events prove exactly what God set out to prove. See chapter 12, verse 12. Chapter 15, verse 11. These events prove that Israel's God is the only God. Other so-called gods aren't worth giving the time of day to. And finally, verse 12, look at his actions. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Jethro responded in worship. He brought offerings to God and he ate with God's people in God's presence. It is an exemplary response, isn't it? Belief, delight, praise, testimony, worship. A far cry from the Amalekites' response in the previous chapter. But how are we to interpret this scene as Christians thousands of years later? Two things, I think. First, we are to realise that we have a salvation that is even better. We're to realise that we have a salvation that is even better. Jethro responds in belief, delight, praise, testimony and worship to a salvation that's come through the death of a literal lamb, passing through of a physical sea. But we have been saved through the death of Christ, our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Through the waters of baptism. 1 Peter 3 verse 21. If Jethro had reason to delight, we have so much more. And second, we're to take comfort from this Gentile confession. It's not entirely clear from this passage whether this is, confession is a conversion for Jethro or simply a significant statement of faith from someone who's already been saved or is on the way to being saved. But it's clear that it is significant. And particularly so because it comes from someone who wasn't ethnically part of Israel. We know from Genesis 12 that God had promised Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we know that God had never planned to save just one people, one nation. He just had to start somewhere. And we've seen the clues along the way in Exodus. The officials who feared the word of the Lord and protected their livestock from the hail in chapter 9, verse 20. The mixed multitude who left Egypt together in chapter 12, verse 38. But here we have the first significant Gentile confession of Yahweh. And it is the first of many. We think of Rahab, Ruth, so many more in the New Testament. And of course, ourselves. For the vast majority of us listening in, who are not ethnically Jewish. Perhaps you listening in this morning have heard something of this story before. I haven't yet responded. 
in repentance, in faith, haven't yet put your trust in the God of the Bible? What's stopping you? Jethro realised that there was no reason to delay. Have you? But perhaps you have put your trust in the God of the Bible. And yet you don't find, as you listen this morning, your heart filled with delight in the way that Jethro's was. Perhaps your heart feels a bit like the weather this morning. Well, the devil would love to make you feel guilty about that and use your guilt to drive you even further away from God. Don't let him. Pray. Ask God to help you to delight in how he has saved you and how he's working in you. And then think about how you could grow in your delight. Maybe you just need to spend more time with God on your own, with a friend, with a spouse, with a small group. Maybe it would help you to engage yourself more in church life, in services, online or in person, in home groups, in meeting up with Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe reading a Christian book, listening to a podcast, listening to Christian music or singing it, getting out into nature, sketching, drawing, journaling, would help to warm your heart to the gospel. Or maybe you struggle to delight in God's story because you simply don't know it very well. I mean, you know the big picture, you've got some favourite verses and passages. But you don't feel the shock of Jonah turning God's great statement of God's character against him in Jonah 4. Or the astonishment of Daniel's countercultural lifestyle in Babylon in Daniel 1 to 3. Or the bitterness of Naomi's tears in Ruth 1. Because you simply don't know God's story well enough. Maybe you need to spend more time in it, reading it, getting to know it reading about and around it. If you struggle to feel Jethro's delight in God's story, don't let the devil drive you to guilt, but pray and consider what you could do to warm your heart to the gospel in the power of the Spirit. So we've seen in the first half of this chapter that we are to know the greatness of God in the second half, we see that we are to know the ways of God. Verses 13 to 27. We are to know the ways of God. Jethro uh, stuck around after the joyous meal of verse 12. And the next day, verse 13, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, with Jethro looking on. Now, we're not quite sure of exactly how things were working. But it seems that, presumably not having had much of a judicial system during their time of oppression in Egypt, the Israelites have most likely, now they're in the wilderness, set up some sort of ad hoc system of trying to discern God's will in particular situations uh, by bringing their disputes to Moses. But Jethro immediately sees the holes in this system, how fraught with difficulty it was, and the lack of longevity it had. And he announced in verse 17, what you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. And so he suggests an alternative plan. 
whether it was given to him directly by God there and then, or whether it was a system he already knew from Midian, we don't know. Um, but he outlines the plan from verse 19. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. So Moses was to maintain his role, teaching God's people God's ways, verse 19, showing them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But in terms of the justice system, he's to deal himself only with the most serious of cases. And he's to appoint a layer of men underneath him who will act as judges in the simple cases. Men who have integrity, men who fear God, are trustworthy and hate dishonest gain. And this, of course, would free Moses up considerably and reduce the burden on him. Moses discerns that this is the right thing to do. And verse 24, he did everything, Jethro said. And then Jethro happily heads home. Verse 27. What are we to do with this? Well, just one point of application this time. We must remember that discerning God's will is not always straightforward. Discerning God's will is not always straightforward. By and large, it's not as straightforward as we think or would like it to be. For here is Moses, God's great leader, struggling to work out what to do in need of some help. That help came first in some practical wisdom from Jethro in this chapter. But then, of course, it came more fully in God's greater, clearer revelation of his identity and of his will in the Ten Commandments and the law. And of course, we are in a much better place than Moses and these Israelites were. For we have the person of Jesus, God's word, his law made human for us to see. And thanks to the spirit, we have God's law written upon our hearts. See Hebrews 8, verses 10 to 12, and its fulfillment of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 33 and 34. But that still does not necessarily mean that it is always easy to discern God's will. Think of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. I don't think that verse would be there. If it was easy for us to test and approve God's will. Trying to work out God's will can be fraught with difficulty. And so often we need to hold the conclusions we form lightly, as biblical principles can wisely be interpreted in different ways in good faith. And I think we've certainly seen this as a church as we've considered what to do with our building 
the old schoolhouse. And I think we see it too, not just as a church, but, but nationally, internationally, in some of the conversations around what the church should do and how it should be in coronavirus times. Across the country, in our church, there'd be a, a wide array of convictions, opinions, thoughts and feelings on this topic. From those who think we should have continued to meet and sung together, even when church gatherings were completely forbidden, to those who think that meeting in person is still a step too far now for services, while cases are out there, while restrictions are in place, while we can meet in person informally in other ways during the week. And there'll be good, faithful, biblical arguments for either position and for everything in between. We need to remember that discerning God's will is not always straightforward. It is often far harder than we think it is and than we would like it to be. It's a slow, long, difficult process, one in which we need great help from the Spirit and one in which we need to be humble holding our views, however well thought through, we feel them to be lightly, gently, and in humility, that we might love one another well. Discerning God's will is not always straightforward. Thankfully, we have God's law made flesh in Jesus, and we have the Spirit. He has written God's law on our hearts. But nevertheless, let us pray that God might transform us by the renewing of our minds, that we might be able to test and approve what his will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jethro's confession of what you have done for your people and his delight in your work. For those of us who have heard that, heard the confession of the Bible and not yet believed, may we trust in you. For those of us who already believe, increase our delight in the gospel and in your saving work and help us, Father, as we seek to discern your will in our individual lives as a church. Thank you that we have your spirit, your law written upon our hearts. Help us to know your will. Help us to love one another well and to hold our opinions lightly, to study your word. And we pray that you will guide us in your good, pleasing and perfect will. Amen. <laughs>